Hear God's word from Mark chapter 6, starting at the end of verse 6, reading through verse 30. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God for his word. This is a difficult passage. A lot of difficult topics to address. On the contrary, our world doesn't like to talk about difficult things. I read an email from a financial institution this week, and it said, Enjoy the summer. We'll take care of your investments. While you relax by the pool or ride ocean waves, our digital advisor can be managing your money for your future. The message of the world is enjoy life now, enjoy life later. And don't think about death. Let me give you a different sales pitch. Come, 
follow Christ and give up on having an easy life. In the cost of discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To come and die. We're looking at the cost of discipleship today. And we're going to look at it in three parts. First, we're going to look at the job of discipleship that Jesus gives to his disciples. The job of discipleship. Then we'll look at the end of discipleship as we look at John the Baptist's end. And then we'll look at an application, the cost of discipleship. So let's jump right in and look at the job of discipleship that Jesus is giving to his apostles here in Mark 6. Quick overview comes from verses 6 and 7, verses 12 and 13, and verse 30. And what Jesus is telling his disciples to do is to travel to towns and pairs. They're on a gospel-based mission. and They're to cast out unclean spirits, that is the demons, and to heal and to anoint those who are sick. And who is it that he asks to do this? None other than the twelve. They're now known as just the 12. They have a dismal resume so far in terms of religious leaders. After all, they're unschooled, untrained fishermen. They also didn't understand Jesus' parables until he explains them. They also didn't trust Jesus in the middle of that storm on the boat until he showed his power to them. They're not exactly the ones that would instill the most confidence. But... What that means is the power of this mission is not rooted in the workers, it's rooted in the sender. Jesus is the one who sends. His strength and his authority to call and to send is what makes the mission successful. When he initially calls the disciples, he says, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. I will make you to become fishers of men. There's training in this. They're not off the bat great at what they're doing. God has called them and he is equipping them and he does use them. When he calls them in chapter 3 to the work of proclaiming the gospel, he first calls them to come and to be with him. To come and be with him that he might then send them out. And here he finally sends them out. But for three chapters they have been with him, learning from him, watching him. They have to be with him first. And they sit at his feet and they learn from him in various passages and they go with him and they tell and they followed him to Nazareth where he was rejected and they watched him and they learned. And then they go. And they go not in their power, but in Christ's power. And even if they do end up growing and learning, it's still not a story of their mission work. It's a story of Christ's mission work through them. Because their job is simply dependence. Dependence. Nobody who ever goes on mission is worthy of the call. No one who proclaims the gospel is perfect. If you are considering ministry, or even as a Christian are considering how can I be equipped to reach those in my family and in my neighborhood, be encouraged. You can't have it all together. You won't ever be perfect. You've never had a perfect pastor, especially not this evening. If God is calling you to ministry, find comfort in the fact that God has never used perfect people except for Jesus. Because it's not about us being impressive. It's about us being dependent on the one who is sending, the one whose word actually has power and authority, and it's not ours. It's Jesus's. So the job then really is to depend. 
And to depend on Jesus, and I'm going to itemize that in two ways. We're going to depend on Jesus for the results, and we have to depend on Jesus for our provisions. Dependence and faithfulness are the job. We use the tools that God has given us. We use them well. We use them as they have been designed. God's word is powerful. When we preach it, it works. We don't have to add things to it. We don't have to dress it up. And that's exactly what the disciples did. In verse 12, it says, They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And in that, there is power over the unclean spirits. In that, there is power to push back the kingdom of darkness because that is the power of God's word at work, advancing the kingdom of heaven. Now, another thing Jesus told them to do was to shake the dust off their sandals when they left a place. And it's supposed to be as a testament against the cities they were in. This is an insult of spiritual proportions. Because whenever the Jewish people would travel, if they left the region of the Holy Land, if they went out into Gentile territory, whenever they returned to the Jewish lands, they were supposed to shake all the dust off of them because even the dust of the Gentiles is unclean. Even the dirt is an abomination to the Jewish people. It would be like us saying, whenever you road trip to Michigan, you have to get a car wash before you cross back into Ohio. So then for the disciples to shake the dust as they leave a Jewish town is to call a Jewish town heathen. It's to call bloodline Israelites pagans, Gentiles. It's an insult of great proportions. Because the real insiders now are not defined by bloodline, nor by lineage, nor by location. In fact, they never were, even though it appeared that way. Instead, the real insiders are defined by faith in Jesus. To reject the message of Jesus, as some of these villages have done, as Nazareth did in last week's passage, to reject this message is to be spiritually dead, to be an outsider. And the disciples are prepared now by Jesus to face rejection. When the gospel goes out, it's not always received favorably. So they are to depend on Christ for the message. They're also to depend on Christ for their provisions. He tells them to travel light. He tells them some things not to bring, and he tells them some things to bring. He says, don't bring bread, don't bring a bag, and don't bring money. Well, when I go on a road trip, those are the first three things I pack. Snacks for the car, suitcase, and a credit card. He says, don't bring these, no bread, no food. Utter dependence on God's provision. He's going to provide people along the way who will invite you in and feed you. No bag, no extra things. It's like flying spirit airlines. No carry-on, no room for the comfy pillow, no room for the Bluetooth speaker. They need to be ready to go at a moment's notice to respond to the call, to focus on what's important and no money. No way to accumulate Earthly encumbrances. (laughs) What are they left to do? Except trust. It seems foolish. How would you, how could you ever go on a trip unprepared? It's because Christ is your preparation and he reveals to you his provision along the way. After all, he's already calmed the storm. Next week, we'll see he feeds the 5,000. He can find dinner for you tonight. And the disciples are learning to trust on this mission. But he does tell them to bring three things. Bring a staff, bring sandals, and bring a belt. These are the exact 
three things that the Israelites were commanded to have ready on the night of the Passover. They were in Egypt. They were about to leave. Exodus 12, 11 says this, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. They are to expect a massive movement in the kingdom of God. They are to expect to desert a former life of slavery, and they're waiting on God to work. So their mission work is entirely dependent on God's movement. And then Jesus also tells them to stay put. When you come into a town, the first people who welcome you in, stay with them. That's, that's puzzling, but if you think about it, you spend some time in a city, you get to know more and more people like, oh, those, I just met some you know, nobility in town and they invited me to come and stay in their house. You can start climbing the ladder, even as a guest, find some nicer provisions. And Jesus is reminding them, no, it's not about you. This is not about building your kingdom. This is not about building your comforts. You're going to get distracted by playing the social games and the comfort games. It's about bearing witness to the people in this village about the gospel of repentance. How distracting it is to you and to me, even to any human, when we increase our comforts because we lose sight of the mission. My mom has a great quote. It says, my life isn't about me. If it is, then I don't know the Lord. It's about serving the Lord. I think that summarizes how Jesus sent his disciples. Their lives aren't about them. It's about serving the Lord. So in short, the job of the disciples is to be faithful and to depend on Christ for the kingdom mission. And that kingdom mission is going to be rejected by some, but it's also going to bear fruit. So expect fruit. They did teach. They did perform miracles. They did cast out demons. And people did respond and receive in faith because those miracles were always accompanied by faith. So they did see fruit and the kingdom of God did advance because the gospel of Jesus Christ has power to change lives. That's the job of discipleship. What's the end of discipleship? Well, Jesus doesn't specifically tell the disciples on their first mission that they're going to die. But the way Mark tells us this story indicates it to us. This is another one of Mark's sandwiches where he takes two stories and puts them together. And so we must interpret them together. He places John the Baptist's martyrdom story right here to foreshadow what is going to happen to those who are on, who are on mission with Jesus. These disciples were just sent, and now we see the end of John the Baptist's ministry. Reminder what Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The end is death. John 15, 20, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And here in just two chapters in Mark 8, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? To follow Jesus is to kill all longings except for his. It's to forfeit the world. It's to sever any loves of earthly things. And the promise of death is for the apostles and for all who follow Jesus. Specifically in this case with John the Baptist, before we flesh this out more, let's look at his specific enemy, Herod. 
Herod is a very... <laughs> I've got a few descriptors of him. First of all, he's sexually immoral. And we see this because he decided to marry his half-brother's wife. And she divorced her original husband, Philip, to marry Herod. And John the Baptist outright condemned these actions, saying, Herod, you can't do this. This is not lawful. Also, we see Herod's sexual immorality in that he had his own stepdaughter dance in front of, or for his birthday party. This is not a family-friendly dance. And it was one of the centerpieces of his party. Herod also married a very vengeful woman. Mark tells us that she held a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to put him to death. And so we see that Herod lacks conviction. The technical term for this is he is wishy-washy. He gladly listened to John the Baptist, even though John the Baptist would speak against him, and he would be perplexed, but he never really understood it or got it. He knew John the Baptist was a righteous and holy man, and he protected John the Baptist from his vengeful wife, but he threw him in prison because his wife wanted him dead. And ultimately, he did give in and executed John the Baptist. That lacks conviction. And he's easily swayed by peer pressure. When he heard that this girl wanted the head of John the Baptist on a platter, Mark tells us he was exceedingly sorry. But he gave in to the pressure of the promise he had made in front of all these people. And so there was no conviction that led him to uh, preserve John the Baptist's life. He caved to the unspoken and powerful pressure of the nobility, the powerful leaders, and the leading men of Galilee that were there in his presence. And this is the enemy that God allowed to prevail over John the Baptist. This is the enemy that God allows to prevail over a faithful minister. We should not be surprised. These are the schemes of Satan at work. This is the enemy. And this is the pattern for all those who are on mission with Jesus, including the disciples who are at this point in Mark's narrative in the middle of the first mission work. We see them report on their first mission work in verse 30. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And as they report this, kind of hanging over this report is an ominous cloud, a foreshadow of death, that the end of John the Baptist would also be their end. Dr. Ken Curtis has done some research here, and um, from tradition, we have, we, can, we have a pretty good guess as to how the disciples died, based on writings outside of the Bible. Now, we know according to Acts 12, too, that James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by Herod. That one's scriptural. The rest of these we get from tradition. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down by the hand of Nero. These are the men on mission in this passage. Paul was beheaded in Rome under Nero. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Thomas was pierced through with four spears. Philip was arrested and killed because he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot was killed for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god in Persia. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was burned to death. Only John and Matthew, we think, did not die by martyrdom. Disciples of Jesus, are you ready for such a fate? Have we let go of the world? Do we have hope beyond death? 
Or are we still gripping this world with white knuckles as the source of our life and our comfort? Or are we seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? John Calvin cuts right to the core when he says this, even when we are overcome by life's miseries, even when life doesn't go our way, even when we say, I hate my life, we barely manage to stop staring at this present life with depraved and stupid admiration as if the world contained within itself the sum of our greatest goods. Even when the world lets us down, we keep running back because we keep holding on to this world. And a few pages later, he says, how can there be acknowledgement of God if our minds are enchanted by the splendor of his gifts? Until the world is as good as dead to us, to our hearts, to our longings, we are cheating God and we are missing the mission. The cost of discipleship is everything this world has to offer, even life itself. How can we have that perspective? That is so counterintuitive. That is not what the world says. How can we have this perspective? It's because we know the real end. The end of discipleship for John the Baptist was death, but we know that's not the end of John the Baptist. The end of these disciples was execution, but we know that's not their end. And for you and for me, it is death to this world, but that is not our end. Because John the Baptist's martyrdom actually foretells not just the disciples' death, but also Jesus' death. John the Baptist, his death, as Mark tells us, it parallels Jesus' in incredible ways. Some commentators pointed this out. They say both Jesus and John are righteous and undeserving of death. Both are arrested and have death plots against them. Both are killed by political rulers who fear them, but are wishy-washy, finally giving in to peer pressure. Both die silently as sheep, silent before their shearers. And both are buried by their followers. Mark is telling us, remember these details. You know the story of Jesus. It's coming again. This is a foreshadow of Christ's death. And we know that Christ did not stay dead. When Christ did die, he laid down his life as an offering for sin. And he endured the painful, shameful, and cursed death on the cross. But he raised on the third day. And when he raised, he was the first fruit from the dead. And what that means is that you and I will follow after him. What that means is when Jesus raised, he declared himself to be the son of God, to have satisfied divine justice, to have vanquished death and Satan who had the power of death. And he declared himself to be the Lord of the living and the dead. And I love this from the the larger catechism. It says, in so raising, Jesus assures his people of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. We too will raise. The real end is not physical death. The victory is not Satan's. The victory is not Herod's or Nero's or the world's. The victory is Jesus's and the victory is his disciples. And then Jesus ascended. And when Jesus ascended, he prepares and he ensures an inheritance beyond comprehension. The things of the world that we let go of are nothing compared to the inheritance that Jesus ascended to bring to us. Riches cannot compete with what Jesus is doing. The fact that we get to be in the presence of God, a God that fully knows us and fully loves us and fully satisfies us. The world has nothing on that. The cost of discipleship is everything that this world has to offer, but the return instead is everything 
that the world to come has to offer. Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, Jesus is alive. I have hope. It's that simple and it is that beautiful. So we've looked at the job of discipleship. We've looked at the end of discipleship. Practically, application here for you and for me, what is the cost of discipleship? The Christian's job is to be a disciple that depends on Christ. As Jesus was training his disciples to do here, trust his sovereignty. He's called you and he's going to bring you to completion. Trust his powerful word, the gospel of truth. Trust his provision for your physical needs. Die to the world and live to Christ. Die to the world and live to Christ. Some people water this down and they say, you should just be willing to die to the world. Just be willing. God doesn't really want us to die for our faith. It's just an inspiring call to faithfulness. But so often that's our excuse to keep indulging in the world and to satisfy our desires. I'm going to charge us. Don't just be willing to die. Obey the command. Die to the world. I am not telling you to take the breath out of your lungs. That is precious. That is God's to care for and to bring to completion at the right time. But sever your every attachment to worldly sinful things. Choose your master. Is it Christ or is it your comforts? If you are in Christ, you have died, Paul tells us in Colossians 3. You have already died to this world and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Do you live like he's your master? Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Psalm 63 says, your steadfast love is better than life. And Psalm 16 says, I have no good apart from you. Proverbs says, all that you may desire cannot compare with the wisdom of God. John writes in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, then the love of the Father is not in him. In the old hymn that we sing sometimes, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Would everything else be not to me, nothing to me, dead to me, except that you are. And in just a handful of chapters, Jesus is going to take this theme and make it even more clear when he talks to the rich young ruler. In Mark 10, he says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. What does this look like for us? Well, maybe it's a social media influencer or somebody who wants to be such. For a Christian to follow this command to die to the world as a social media influencer means that this person will die to her self-feeding fame by deleting, perhaps, her successful accounts, so-called successful accounts, in order to dedicate her time and desires to the kingdom, to the king, to the church, and to her faithfulness to him. The same-sex attracted person will die to sinful desires that feel welded to his very being in order to love and live according to the hope that Christ has secured. The person who is addicted to pornography dies to the fallen flesh and gives no opportunity to feed that desire in order to see the beauty of the eternal life God has prepared for him. 
the anxious worrier who's always concerned about whether he'll be comfortable, comfortable enough in retirement, dies to worldly riches and trusts that God clothes the lilies, how much more his children. The money-hungry woman dies to her greed by actively choosing to work fewer hours than she otherwise could in order to be faithful to the other areas of her Christian life. The man who holds a grudge actively dies to his anger and to his control by laying down the sword and humbly working to restore relationship. The lonely person dies to these perfect ideals they have created in their mind and prays that contentment and gratitude for Christ's companionship and his people would satisfy. And the downcast person dies to the lies of the evil one and the hopelessness of the world and grabs a hold of the hope of the resurrection. Why? Why do Christians do these things? Because we have a greater perspective. We have a real comfort that this world knows nothing about and it is fueled by a greater hope. Calvin summarizes it like this. He says, either the earth must become worthless to us or we must remain bound by the chains of extravagant love for it. I'll finish with this illustration. What if you found out today that this great uncle you never met is going to leave you four and a half million dollars when he dies in 15, 20 years? Don't know when, but he's getting up there in age. And you have an incredible inheritance coming. It changes how you view today. You become a little less worried about the 401k. You become a little less worried about whether or not you're going to be able to make ends meet for the rest of your life because you know there is relief coming. You can wait patiently. Now imagine you have an inheritance way better than four and a half million dollars. Imagine you have the hope of eternal life in the presence of God and his promise to be with you by his spirit today. We can do anything for 80 years, my friends, as hard as it may be. The financial situation might not be what we hope. The relationships in our family might not be what we want. But because we have the hope of the resurrection, we can endure today with the hope of Christ. But it's only for those whose faith is in this Christ. But I warn you, before you put your faith in this Jesus, it will cost you everything this world has to offer. But the resurrection hope that we have makes this world, as C.S. Lewis says, look like mud pies in a slum compared, compared to that holiday at sea that we get to look forward to. Let us pray and thank our God for this hope. Gracious God, we pray as Job says, though you slay us, we will trust you. We let go of our control over today and tomorrow and 10 years from now. We pray that the hope of who Jesus is, the truth of who Jesus is and the hope that he has brought for us would drive us to peace and comfort today 
and confidence that we would not worry as the world does, that we would tear our hearts from this world, that your spirit would be with us, that we would be willing participants in our growing in Christ-likeness today and until you call us home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.